Welcome to Take 10 for Mental Health. We are conversations with inspiring people about how they manage their mental health. My name is Sophia Hatsis. I am the host of the show and I get the privilege of bringing you these conversations every week. We speak to people from all walks of life, like Gotcha for Life founder Gus Wallen. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. I truly believe that vulnerability is a new way to lead. There's stuff that we do that is good. There's stuff that we just don't know what we're doing. It's nothing wrong with being human and explaining that to the people that you love. Episodes drop on Monday, so make sure you're subscribed and you're the first to know when they're available. Welcome to Take 10 for Mental Health. We are inspiring conversations with inspiring people about how they manage their mental health. And today I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Coral. Hannah, how are you? Hi, Sophia. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm like just hanging on like to the edges of like life as we get closer and closer to Christmas. I feel like this is the time of year where everyone's like, oh my God, we're so close to Christmas. And it's just that uh, storm right before the, the, the calmness of Christmas. Goodness me. Is the something's in the water. I feel like something's in the air because we're all reaching this stage or this phase of just almost throw your hands up. I've done enough for the year someone please let me rest. Um, So I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, I guess, Hannah, the the first thing that I sort of want to touch on really quickly, and it's a question that I ask my guests before we get started properly, is if you were to rate your how you are on a scale of one to 10. Um, So one being sort of the lowest of lows and, and 10 being the highest of highs, whereabouts would you say you fit on that scale today? Oh my gosh. Well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a real person, right? So I'm going to say like a five because earlier this morning I was in a flap, like a flap. I was, I was having a little bit of panic because I had to do so many things and my brain, I'm an anxious type. So I've dealt with anxiety most of my life. So this morning was pretty anxious for me, but this afternoon I'm feeling really good and really happy. So I think I can, I'm going to give you the average of the the low this morning, but the very high this afternoon. So I'm going to say a five, like it's okay to be in the middle. <laughs> okay. Beautiful. And that actually flows really nicely into my first question because um, you have done extensive research in psychology. And I wanted to ask you very specifically what is your role now, if you could tell our audience and what that means? And where did your interest in psychiatry and psychology come from? Yes. So I am a neuropsychologist, which basically means that I've studied psychology for my undergrad, my honours, and then I specialised in the neurological side of things by doing my master's in neuropsychology. And I also went on to do a PhD in uh, language disorders and ADHD. That's one of my interest areas. Um and I currently work up in a hospital in the, the north part of Sydney. So uh, that that's where I work with a lot of like people on the psychiatric ward and the wider hospital with brain injuries, older people. Uh, and in my clinic, I specialize, I, I have a private practice as well for the rest of the week uh, where I work with people who think they might have autism or ADHD. Also do a lot of work with people getting on government support like NDIS. Um, so it's pretty rewarding, pretty fun job. And the way I got into it was because one of my favorite, favorite lecturers in um, undergrad read a passage out of a book. It's called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. It's by Oliver Sacks. And it's a really great book about crazy neurological cases. So I, I read this, yeah, this amazing passage and I was like, what is this? What is, oh my gosh, what is that? Yeah. Um, and it just sparked that interest in, in the brain and the crazy things that we can do sometimes. Yes. I'm so interested in delving into this with you a little bit. Um, And we are going to go a little bit off 
script and off kilter, which I understand that you were totally happy to be on board with um, because we did speak pre-interview about this. And this honestly is an area of psychology and neuroscience, which I'm really fascinated in because of my most recent experiences, which is all around grief and heartbreak. And I think there's a probably a misconception or a misunderstanding in society as to what the actual physical and psychological effects of heartbreak and grief actually are. Um, So we're going to delve into that a little bit now. Can you please explain from a scientific perspective that can be understood or understood, sorry, by the regular person, what happens when you have your heart broken? What actually happens in your body? Yeah, so the first thing I'll, I'll kind of note is in your brain, like somewhere just above kind of your eyebrow and above your ear where your two fingers might meet in the middle, like inside your brain, there's this thing called your anterior cingulate gyrus. Now that is a little part of your brain that lights up when your body experiences pain. When your body experiences physical pain, like someone kicks you in the leg, hopefully they never do, but if they did, that part of your brain would light up to indicate the perception or the feeling of pain. Now, that very same part of your brain lights up when you experience emotional pain. So a heartbreak, a social exclusion, being teased or bullied, anything that's not physical, but it's an emotional type of pain. When you feel that emotional pain, the same part of your brain is lighting up, whether it's physical or emotional. So straight away, that tells us that our brain interprets these sensations in the same way. And that a physical sensation of pain couldn't be, um, uh, sorry, an emotional sensation of pain can be just as intense and just as real and just as painful as a physical sensation of pain, which is funny in our society because we don't really tend to give them the same level of um, gravity. Wow, that's really fascinating. So can I ask on that point, because I feel that heartbreak is a very unique situation and I'm sure you would have seen this with clients in the past and potentially clients that you have now is that initial heartbreaking moment where a relationship has ended can you talk us through the actual physical like what is going on in your body when this happens yeah so okay all right I'm gonna take you on a little journey so in your body you have this thing called the vagus nerve okay and this is part of your um, cerebellum it's part of the the system of your fight and flight which is your sympathetic nervous system now this little guy you can think of him like a button that gets turned on and pushed whenever there's a danger around so if there was a burglar that you needed to fight if there was a fire you needed to fly away from if there was a snake coming at you to bite you and you had to be very still and freeze and not make any moves because then you don't the snake won't bite you or maybe there was a bully that you needed to fawn all over and an alpha dog that you needed to get in the pack and and make sure you were in the winning pack so that you didn't get attacked and you had to fawn all over the bully to get them to accept you into the pack that's fight light, freeze, and fawn, okay? Those are the, the, the body's evolutionary processes that keep us safe. Now, your vagus nerve turns on the sympathetic nervous system, which is adrenaline, cortisone, the stress hormones, in other words, and they make your body ready to 
give a lot of energy to fight, flight, freeze, fawn. You need a lot of energy to do that. What that means is you need your heart to pump really fast. You need your lungs to breathe lots of air and maybe even take quicker, shorter breaths. You need your muscles to tighten up, to tighten up. So that might mean we get headaches and backaches and a stiff back. You need irrelevant parts of your body to stop working and to give their energy to more relevant parts like your muscles. So that means your tummy, your digestive system gets suppressed because you don't need to be digesting the burger that you ate for lunch. You need to run away from the burglar. So we either get the runs or we vomit or we might feel sick in the belly as our digestive system gets depressed. We also get um, impacted sleep. So you can't sleep when there's a fire. You can't sleep when there's an emergency. You need to be awake. You need to be alert. Mm. So your body wants to suppress that sleeping sensation, making it hard to fall asleep, stay asleep, um, and making it really hard for you to get quality, quality sleep. So all of these systems are turning on in your body down to a very cellular level. This impacts your, um, your immune system. It impacts your endocrine system. It in- impacts estrogen, testosterone, um, DHEA, which is a type of chemical used in um, muscle building and also keeping us young and youthful. And down to a cellular level, it means our body isn't really replicating as optimally. The cells in our body aren't replicating as optimally as we'd like them to be because you know, in that short window of time, we need to survive. So our body's putting all of its energy into survival mode, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's really when that fight and flight turns into a chronic, chronic experience that we might be having some problems. So when we think about breakups, a breakup is, you know, a, it's obviously an unpleasant experience. We've all been there. I've been there. We've all been there. When you're being broken up with, it's, it's going against your body's homeostasis. Mm. We all have a, a level that's normal for us and your mm. body fights really hard to keep you in that normal place. And mm. as soon as something scary like a change comes up, mm. you probably notice that feeling of panic as you're, as a, the breakup's about to happen you sense it's about to happen. You might have even been the one who wanted it to happen, but... As soon as it's starting to happen, you your body freaks out and panics. You go, oh, no, maybe this isn't right. And you get flooded with that sensation of stress and panic and overwhelming dread. And your body can physically start hurting. It can physically, it's like a hangover. Like your body is releasing the toxins and the hormones and the neurotransmitters that feel like we're having a, ha- a hangover or a headache. Mm. Um, and some advice is to literally literally take a Panadol in Mm. in a breakup, literally take a Panadol because your body is hurting as you're going through that experience. When you're going through a breakup, particularly if it's a particularly painful one um, and you're sort of in the trenches in those first few weeks of, of grieving and mourning the loss of the person and the extension of that person, their family, their friends, the future that you envisage together, what is the best way to protect your body and to calm your nervous system down. Because often, you know, the things that we know that are good for us, like exercise and eating well and eating nutritiously and connecting with others are the things that kind of go out the window when something like a grief, you know, like a death in the family or um, a loss of a partner happens. What is your sort of advice when it comes to re-regulating that nervous system in those moments? 
Oh my gosh. I, I love this question, Sophia, because I'm, I've literally been there. Yeah. Like I, I've literally been in a place like I've got a, a beautiful partner now, but even just earlier in the start of the year, you know, I, I went through a breakup myself. Right. And I remember those nights of laying in bed awake at night and my brain turning on and telling me things like, you're going to die alone. You're never going to find anybody. You're, you know, 34 years old. This is it for you, girl. Like all of those thoughts, which are really very, very common and normal thoughts that we end up sort of, I think we do two things. Okay. What our tendency when we feel unpleasant thoughts is to do two things. The first thing is to intellectualize. So we're clever, smart people. We intellectualize. The second thing is distract. Okay. So that, what that first one means is, we, when you're in, when you're a high flying, intelligent, you know, beautiful woman like yourself, Sophia, you, you're, you're obviously very successful, high functioning person who's got through life, you know, by thinking their way through things. You have thought your way out of situations. And the best way to solve a problem is to think of a solution. So your brain tries to think of all of the different scenarios and all of the different solutions for each of those scenarios. So we think of scenario A, what if, what if A happens? What if B happens? Oh, but what about, what if C happens? Oh, hang on a minute. What if, what if A1 happens? What if scenario A1, or hang on, what about scenario B1 or BC? Oh, but hang on a minute. What if scenario A1.2 happens? You know, and we start thinking and thinking and thinking about endless scenarios because we can't predict the future, can we? So we, our brain is trying to take this huge world and summarize it into a rubric, a flowchart, and it just doesn't work. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work. There's no end to the possible, um, the possibilities that can occur for you. So your brain will never stop thinking. And then we end up ruminating and ruminating and ruminating until the point of panic. It turns on our fight and flight system because we can't outthink the problem. We can't outthink it. It just is what it is. And we can't outthink it. And our body fills with all of those stress hormones and has that panic reaction. The second thing we then might do is distract ourselves, reach for the distraction. And that might look like, you know, putting on the phone, putting on the audiobook. For me, it was Harry Potter, Harry Potter audiobooks all the way. I used to love <laughs> listening to those. I couldn't fall asleep. I would be thinking, thinking, thinking. So I just put my Harry Potter audiobook on to try to fall asleep. For other people, it might be laying on the couch and eating that tub of ice cream and watching, doing the, the binge fest of Netflix. Um, for others, it might be distracting themselves by calling a family member, a friend, seeking advice, over-reliance on other people to reassure us. For others, it might be distracting ourselves by running right back into the arms of the person who we broke up with mm. in the first place to stop the pain, to mm. stop it, distract ourselves from the pain. Mm. Okay, so we're really good at using those two methods of intellectualizing and overthinking and distraction. Mm. What is harder to do and what we have never really been given education on is how to sit with the panic, how to sit with the panic which is at its core, it's your core belief. It's your fundamental belief that somewhere along the lines you learnt in life, right? Somewhere along the lines of life, I learnt that, oh my God, when you get in your 30s, that's it for you. You know, you better get a, you get, you better be married by then. You better have children. All of those cliched, you know, stereotypes. I've, I've absolutely suffered from those in the past. Um, and currently even, and they pop up, they, they rear up for you. 
and they're not necessarily true. Some really popular ones are things like, I'm not good enough, no one's going to love me, never going to find anybody, going to be alone, nobody likes me. Those fundamental beliefs that we might have picked up when we were young kids, maybe from a previous relationship. Another word for those core beliefs is brainwashing. I like to call them brainwashing. (laughs) They're the things that you've been tricked into believing, that your body is believing. So when someone accidentally triggers that belief, your body goes, oh, oh my gosh, it's the belief that I was afraid of. Panic mode, awooga, awooga, alert, alert, alert. (laughs) And sends all the adrenaline, sends all the cortisone, and we have a freak out. Yeah. Now the way the way that we can um, start to start to adjust this response is just notice that hey oh my gosh yeah I do have a belief that might not actually be true it might be brainwashing it might be brainwashing and I know in my head that I am good enough but in my heart I don't feel good enough but what I can start to do is give myself a little bit of leeway a little bit of patience. Stop trying to fix myself straight away. Stop trying to delete my anxiety and delete my worry and never feel a bad feeling again, except that I am a little bit scared Mm. and I'm going to let my body sit in that fear for a second Mm. and just sit there and take a breath. Mm. Just one breath. Just sit in that fear for one second. And by sitting with it, it starts to kind of lose its power a little bit. We can start to kind of see it for what it is, which is, oh, there you are, my little brainwasher, my little fake belief coming in to scare me. There you are, breaking mm-hmm. it down, mm-hmm. making me overthink, making me chase distractions. There you are, hello. And maybe the first time you do this, it's you just noticing, oh, my gosh, that's that brainwashing thing that that lady on that podcast was talking about. And you panic and you intellectualize and you distract. Maybe next week you notice it pops up again and you go, what did she say to do? That's right. She said, take a breath. Mm. And then maybe the next week you can take two breaths. And then the next week you get to three breaths and four breaths before you feel the irresistible urge to overthink and distract can we start to build up that distress tolerance of sitting with that belief Mm. so that it loses its power over us, Mm. loses its power over us? One of the things that I wanted to ask you really is is around healing. If we were to go back to sort of the breakup for for a moment because obviously in those first initial or any initial stage of grief, the feelings are very heightened. People are pretty good at checking in and connecting and making sure that you're okay and sending you meals and blah, blah, blah. But then there comes a point where people stop picking up the phone and people stop reminding to check in on how you are and that's just life going on. How would you suggest that someone sort of in the depths of grief or in the depths of a heartbreak or in the depths of a very, very challenging emotional situation, how can you heal in the healthiest way possible? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Such a big question to unpack. I know. I mean – everyone's different right so acknowledging first and foremost that your path might be different to someone else's path Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of examples of influences and amazing you know do it this way do it that way those things might not work for you and that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you 
you know, it's not your fault, right? You didn't, you didn't bring this upon yourself because you didn't manifest hard enough or you didn't bring this upon yourself because you didn't think hard enough or give enough or do enough. There is no right and wrong in life. There's just life, right? And if we, we did everything right the first time, there would be no growth mm. and no learning. Mm. If you look back on a decision and know that you could have done it differently, that's a sign that you've grown because you've learned that you could have done it differently. And it's the yeah. sign that you're always learning. I think giving yourself the space to take time to heal and it, that it's okay if you don't know how to heal. You don't have to know the answer of how to heal. You don't have mm-hmm. to know it right here and right now. Um, I would probably encourage people to seek out, you know, some some ongoing support, you know, not just from the informal people in your life, but getting a psychologist and and talking to a psychologist. I'm a psychologist and Mm. I'm a psychologist who sees another psychologist. Mm. I think everyone would benefit from psychology to look in on themselves Mm. and reflect on things in life. And if you don't know where to start, a psychologist is great because they can help you to figure out where to start in this. So that's kind of a nice, easy step of seeing your GP, getting a mental health care plan, and book, just book in, just book in with a psychologist and see what happens. Yeah. Oh, my psychologist is a godsend. I, She has truly changed my life and really challenged very deep perceptions of myself and very, very deep wounds that I had never, never addressed in my 26 years of life. And I've done a lot of work. I've seen a lot of psychologists in my time and um, for a variety of reasons, but she was kind of the first one to call to sort of call me on it and be like, oh, okay, where's this coming from? And where did that happen? And why do you feel this way? And what is this complex about? And it's such a, I mean, we could talk about the inaccessibility of mental health services for days, and I'm sure we could get there at a later date. But if you are in a position to get a mental health care plan or see a therapist of some kind, it is, um, can create really a world of difference. Um, I would just love to ask you one more question and that is what is your top mental health non-negotiable every day? Because I'm assuming you have like a mental health care plan or routine or a well-being strategy, but what is just one thing, if you were to think about one thing that you do for your mental health, what is that? Hmm. Oh my God. I think it's going to sound boring, but it's like eat, sleep, bathe. <laughs> yeah. They're so important. They yeah. are so important. And they're really critical for turning off the, the vagus nerve and turning on the parasympathetic system, which is your rest and restore system, is to take your body out of that physiological place that you're in mm-hmm. and physically do something different. Eating switches on a different physiological process. Mm-hmm. Putting your body underwater and in water changes your physiological process. Mm-hmm. And sleeping is the that is when your brain cleans up the neurofibrillary plaques and tangles that make us feel sluggish and tired the next day. Mm-hmm. So you know that old adage, everything feels better after a good night's sleep. It's really true. That is when your brain will will quite literally clean itself up at mm-hmm. nighttime and you will feel better if you if you get don't get the rest and if you don't get the food. And if you don't treat your body, you know, do those those basic, basic things to take care of your body, it's almost like you're starting the next day on the back foot again. Mm. So it's like yeah. reset. It's like wiping the slate clean a little bit. So for me, those three are really important. Eat, sleep, bathe. There's no better way to finish that. I think we will end that there. Dr. Hannah Coral, 
Thank you so much for joining us on Take 10 for Mental Health. It has been an absolute pleasure. And a lot of these things we don't really talk about very openly. Grief is something that we cast into the shadows and we push away and we don't bring out into the light. And I really hope someone who's listening really got the opportunity to feel seen and and feel heard through our conversation. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful um, for your patience and for your time. And I wish you all the best. Have a wonderful rest of your day. It's a beautiful day. Um, And we'll be in touch, of course, soon. Thanks, Sophia. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Episodes drop every Monday morning and you can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or on your favourite podcast app. Remember to take 10 and check on the man you love today.